Okay. What do you say? Shall we get going? Oh, you have the letter in front of you. Um, this letter is uh, is incredible because it's part of one of these, it's part of an enormous story that shaped Israeli politics, shaped the difference between how Haredim interact with the Dati Lumi party. It's the actual cause of the reason why Revel Yashiv left the government and went to uh, sort of become the leader of the Haredi world in a cloister in Me'asharim rather than staying as part of the government. It's, it's one of those stories that shaped the religious development of Israel. And I knew nothing about it before this letter. I, I went looking to figure out what the Rebbe is talking about. And he's talking about this incredible story. So I want to give you the background, then we'll read the letter. The, uh, the background is that in like the early 1910s, 1920s, a woman named Chava Ginsburg, she meets a, a non-Jewish man whose name was Borokovsky in Poland. And uh, she wants to marry him. Her family's Hasidish. They are not happy with this marriage at all. Uh, she's also 14, which is kind of weird. And uh, the parents are very, very upset. The, the guy's like 20 something. So it was a weird marriage and a weird situation. They beg the guy to convert and he does. The guy, this guy converts to Judaism and names himself Avram Borakovsky. The family later on moves to Eretz Yisrael. So they move to Eretz Yisrael, Chava and uh, Chava Ginsburg and this Avram Borakovsky who are married and Avram Borakovsky is ostensibly a Yid. And they have a kid or two and then the marriage doesn't go very well. They get a divorce. So after they get a divorce, Chava decides she wants to remarry, and she remarries a guy named Langer. She mar marries a Langer. They have two kids together. They're two kids named Hanach and Miriam. Now, she did not get a divorce from her first husband. You probably know that if somebody doesn't get a if a woman doesn't get a divorce from her first husband and then remarries without a divorce and has children, those children are mamzerim. So when she goes after her husband, after her second husband dies, she goes to the Rabbanut to get some sort of a heter so that she can marry a, a third person. And while she's there, they start doing the digging in the background and discover that she has two mamzerim. Now, the Rabbanut controls all marriages in the country, still does and did then too. And they write down on their forms that these two kids aren't allowed to get married in the state of Israel to anybody except for another mamzer or a ger, which is the halacha with mamzerim. These two kids, however, are pretty high profile. They end up working in Meshe Dayan's office for Tzahal, and they decide they want to get married, and they appeal to higher authorities and say, move these rabbis aside, we want to get married, even though we're declared mamzerim. This goes through uh, all the Israeli courts. Uh, it goes through all the rabbinical courts, and everybody looks at the situation and tries to figure out if they can to these mamzerim. What they're trying to do, what they tried to do initially was claim that the original guy, this Avram, who converted, didn't have a kosher conversion, that he was still not Jewish. Their, uh, their, their idea for that was that he has no proof that he converted, and when they asked him, they, they brought him into Besden. They said, uh, do you know what, uh, are you Jewish? He goes, yeah, of course I'm Jewish. I put on tefillin every day and I keep Shabbos. They said, great, put on tefillin for us. And he couldn't do it. And they asked him about Shabbos and he wasn't keeping it. And uh, then they asked him to say the Shema. They said, when you go to Shul on Shabbos, can you say Lechad He could not. So they said, uh, we'll start Shema for you. You finish the sentence. So they said, Shema Yisrael, and he couldn't finish the sentence. They said, we're not completely convinced that you were ever Jewish. Uh, but then he has people come to testify on his behalf. A Gabay of a Shul that says that he comes every week. So it seems like he might just be a, a, a Jew who's not very good at Judaism, but uh, they, they can't figure it out. Um, after they after the Bati Dinah meet, a bunch of big names are involved in this, Rebbe Yashar, Rebbe Yosef, just about every name of the era is involved in this case. And they all decide unanimously that uh, that Avram is Jewish and that therefore his wife needed a get. She didn't get a get, so the children are mamzerim. And meanwhile, in the secular press, I sent you guys some links. There's an article in the New York Times. This is being reported very widely as a big clash between state and religion. Because the state, the Golden the Golden Mayer, the liberal government introduced the Labor Party introduces a legislation that says that um, that they are going to start civil marriage in Eretz Israel because of this case, because they don't want things like this to happen. So they're about to take all control away from the Rabbanut forever when it comes to marriage. And up comes Shlomo Goren. Rabbi Shlomo Goren at the time was the head of Tahal's. Uh, he was the head rabbi of Tahal. 
is the Rav Rashi of Tzahal, and he writes a pamphlet saying he thinks they're not Mamzerim. And just then it happens to be that there is an election for Rav Rashi of Eretz Yisrael, and the liberals back him and he wins on the promise that he will overturn this ruling. And he does. On month one, the first month that he's in office as Rav Rashi of the entire country, Shlomo Garan revisits the case with nine anonymous judges and overturns everything. Uh, and decides that these two kids can marry. They get married in a big ceremony attended by all the government officials. It's reported in the New York Times that finally the rabbis gave in, and it's seen as a it's seen as a big slip for the rabbinut. Um, Rabbi Yashiv leaves over this. This is the moment where he breaks his ties with uh, sec- with, with uh, religious Zionism and sort of creates what is the modern Haredi part of the state. Um, and uh, meanwhile, liberals are hailing it as a moment where the Rabbanut finally killed over and where the truth is that now secular ideals are running the state of Israel and not rabbinic ideals. Until this point in the story, the Rebbe has a pretty good relationship with Shlomo Goran. From this point on, they cut ties completely. The Rebbe doesn't want anything to do with him. And the Rebbe calls in several sikhas, he has mo- multiple sikhas about this, where he calls on him to, uh, to resign or calls on the, or calls on the other Rabbanim to somehow fire him. The Rebbe, who normally doesn't get involved in these sorts of issues, felt that this was an incredible, an incredibly terrible thing that uh, the Shlomo Goran ruled in this manner. And uh, I don't believe that there was ever any relationship between the Rebbe and Shlomo Goran after this case. Anyway, this letter, somebody writes to the Rebbe asking what his impression is of the entire case. And you get the Rebbe's philosophy on how to handle the case and how to handle the fallout uh, over the course of two pages. So that's what we're looking at right now. Sorry for the long introduction, but I think the historical context here matters. Um, if you're looking at the letter, we're on page Tess. I hope you got the letter. It doesn't say who we wrote to. It says, Shalom Abracha, Lichtev Eidus Eira. We're going to write, I want to write to you. You wrote to me about this event. It shook up everybody. All around the world. You want to know my opinion? Maybe you want to know more than just my opinion. But Eva says, you're asking me to get involved in this issue. Moving to it's true that uh, in writing, it's difficult for me to explain this as is necessary. I do want to mention several points. Certainly those who are opposing you will be satisfied by this answer. So this is somebody clearly who's writing because he wants to defend the Rebbe's position against Shlemagarin's sack. And he's, uh, he has people who are attacking him. So he wants, he wants help. Um, so the Rebbe is writing a couple points that he should keep in mind. And these points are much more universal than just the historical case. These are points I think we can use when explaining any aspect of the Torah to the general public. Point number one. I mean, Aleph. First of all, the Torah is a Torah of truth, and it's a Torah of kindness. And something that the Torah forbids, that certain people aren't allowed to marry Jewish people anymore because they're These children are certainly not being punished for the sins of their fathers. This is not that the Torah feels meaning to somehow punish illegitimate children. The Torah itself says, that each person is only punished for their own sins. And furthermore, says, it's said in shock, it's, it's a smia. That basically means we don't do intergenerational punishment. The fathers, the children don't have their teeth blunted for the forbidden foods that their fathers eat. So we have a rule. The Torah doesn't punish kids for the sins of their fathers. So clearly, mamzerus is not a punishment. It's a, it's a fact. It's been described by some people as a spiritual genetic disease. <clears throat> it's nobody's fault. It's not a, it's not an Indian of Einish. It simply is. Even when it comes to the actual individuals who are not allowed to marry each other. Those are also not punishments. The Rebbe gives an example. A divorced woman is not allowed to marry a, not, not allowed to marry a Kayin. 
you might have thought that this means that a divorced woman is somehow being penalized, that there's a certain guy she can't marry. But as the Rebbe explains, this Isser would apply even to the most worthless Kain. She can't marry even a Kain who's not a very good husband or a very simple person. Whereas we allow her to marry a perfect Tzadik, even if he's not a Kain, as long as he's not a Kain. So what the Rebbe is saying here is that we can prove that a divorced woman is not being penalized by the fact that she can't marry a Kain. She's not being punished. Because if we were trying to punish her, we would try to limit who she can marry to only low quality people. And that's not the case. She can marry the biggest Torah scholar in the world. She can marry the she can marry the, the top leaders in the Jewish community. She just can't marry a kain. And that kain could be a very lowly person. So clearly this isn't an einish. It's a, it's a simple function of the law. She so can marry David Abelach. I don't know. Is it, a king's allowed to marry a Garusha, right? Yeah, yeah. I believe right. Well, so she's she's married, right? Yeah. that's the point. So that's the Rebbe's point. He's saying... Um, He's saying, look, we're clearly not punishing anybody because if we were, we'd do it a little differently. These are the rules about forbidden relations. Who can marry whom and who and what children are produced from it? it it's, not, it's not a punishment. That's point number one. And that, I think, is really an eternal point. I, I literally, five minutes ago, was on my WhatsApp group with my former students. One of them decided to open the can of worms of, uh, of very similar issues to this, who people can marry, who they can't, the forbidden relationships. And uh, one of the key points that Eba wants us to emphasize when people ask us about these is that it's a teres chesed and a teres emes. The teres is true and it's kind, and no one's being punished. Okay, thing number two. Whenever we have people involved in uh, in in subsequent in, in subsequent substantial consequential matters, as soon as something's tied to people, as long as we live in an imperfect world, you're going to have events that happen that are undesirable. And sometimes people even do things that they shouldn't do. So as long as we're in an imperfect world, the Rebbe says, there's two ways to address imperfections in the world. And this is the Rebbe's sort of worldview of how to take, there, there are two ways that the world can address um, somebody's imperfections. Thing number one, Aleph. Let's say that I have a friend, things aren't going, he's not doing something that's correct, he's acting, in, he's acting inappropriately, or he's a mamzer hypothetically who can't marry. Uh, I can, if he's a close friend of mine and the situation is consequential, I can hide over the Indian. I can try to cover things up. I'm turning the page. I can try to make excuses for him. I built the even excuses that don't really make a lot of sense. Just to protect the honor of the person who I'm trying to defend. Man, sometimes I'm so, uh, I'm so, uh, I'm so pressed. Uh, with this great inspiration to protect this person's honor. I'm so convincing that even he comes to believe what I'm saying, that somebody knows they're doing something wrong and I want to defend them. And in my defense of them, I convince them and myself of things that aren't true. Even though in the beginning, we all knew that we were making up lies, that we were calling something sour, sweet, and that we were calling something evil good. But once I saw this obligation upon myself to defend my friend, I decided to step in and mess things up. So that's one approach people use, is that they try to cover up matters, even when it's not intellectually honest to do so, and they fool themselves and others. The second thing is, the second approach, the healthy approach, is not to hide over anything, not to cover things up, not to lie, not to say that bad is good or that sweet is or that uh, sour is sweet, 
We have to try to find the reason to find the reason behind this negative action. And try, however possible, to fix what's going on. That is, we try to fix the matter. We don't hide the problem. We try to find, we try to solve it. And then there can't be any negative outcomes. It's true. This approach will damage the honor of the individual in the short term. Furthermore, it's going to lose you some friends. The guy who you're not defending and instead trying to help may come to you and say, hey, you're not my real friend. My real friend of mine wouldn't be trying to find solutions. He'd just be blindly defending me. At the same time, this is the proper way to do things. The Daiti Abrura, the Rebbe says, it's my clear opinion. When we look back in history, I believe that the proper approach, that the outcome of the first way of doing things, where you cover up the truth, is is that the reward is imaginary, and you end up losing out on a lot. The truth is that the truth always comes out. Eventually we discover that evil is evil and sour is sour, bitter is bitter. Not only are you not able to defend this person in the long term, because eventually the truth will come out. Since people will stop trusting you, because you lied about this person, even when you come with real proofs to defend them, you won't be, uh, nobody will believe you because you lied about them originally. So I think this is very broadly applicable here. The Deb is saying that in general, when you have a choice of covering up someone else's, uh, someone else's problems or telling the truth about their problems and trying to solve them, covering them up ends up having a, a, uh, a negative effect on the entire situation. You're not trusted later to actually help them. And even though they say, you're my friend now, thanks for covering for me in the end, the truth comes out and everybody ends up in trouble. <coughs> Excuse me. Another point, and the Rebbe says is the most important point. Doing it the first way, where you cover up the matter, no, nothing gets fixed. The problem never goes away. So you keep on covering up the issue to defend this person's honor, and meanwhile, the problem stands. It weakens the, the ability of others to fix the problem. And especially when this guy covering up Everything comes and whispers in our ear, hey, maybe we really should fix this. The answer is ready. You've already announced very loudly. You've already told me that there's no problem. Why would I fix it? In exchange for a temporary a temporary protection of the honor of the individual, it prevents us from ever fixing the problem. So the Rebbe is uh, speaking very generally here, but what he's talking about relative to the case is that in the in the in a misguided attempt from the liberal side and from Shlomo Garin's side to defend the honor of these two mamzerim, we're telling the mamzerim everything's okay. We're covering up the issues. We're sort of turning their father into a guy in order to uh, in order to make this work. But the truth is that uh, the truth will come out eventually. And in the meantime, you're losing all credibility by doing it. So you're helping nobody. You're not you're also, meanwhile, these two mamzerim are going to go out and marry other people, and make more mamzerim. So there's no there's no way for us to solve the problem. So you're not solving the problem. You're making it harder to solve the problem in the long term, and you're undermining your own credibility. So these are all of his answers to the uh, to the to the to the uh, the ruling of Shlemagarin. The Rebbe gives a mashal. We are very short on time. I'm going to, instead of reading the mushal, just going to tell you the mushal. The mushal is in this paragraph, mushal The mushal is that a sick person comes to the doctor and the doctor says, you're not so sick right now. If we give you a drug, you'll get better, but you need to take the drug. And if you don't, you'll get much more sick. Meanwhile, the person's friends come by and say, no, 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 he's not sick at all. He's not even taking this small drug. And as a matter of fact, all of his symptoms are proof that he's healthy. And they convince him not to take the drug. What happens to the sick guy? He ends up getting more sick. 
And in the end, his friends didn't help him, they only hurt him. So the Rebbe again is brought this muscle, the Nimshals, I think, move on, that by protecting, by taking the Mamzerim and, and, and you know, wrapping our arms around them and saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. This is just a zealot religious state declaring you Mamzerim, but the truth is you're fine. We're preventing them from getting the necessary treatment. We're preventing anybody from actually solving the problem, finding the people they can marry, maybe other Mamzerim, maybe a Ger, maybe a um, maybe a Shifcha Knanis that's free. There's ways to fix these sorts of things that are tricky, but possible. We're, uh, we're, we're undermining our credibility and we're... Uh, and we're preventing the situation from being solved. Um, the Rebbe goes on to say, He's saying, I know that I didn't say a whole lot, but I assume you'll be able to get everything you need from my from these few short lines I've written. At the very least, uh, the Iker is that we should find a way to solve this problem. He says, in the end of the day, even these Mamzerim will thank us if we if we treat this appropriately. They will eventually, they themselves will compliment us if we stand strong and do the right thing, just as a sick person with the doctor in our muscle will ultimately thank the doctor who eventually gives him the cure. And that's that's the Rebbe's letter. It is uh, just a terrible and somewhat funny uh, sub uh, note at the end of this that uh, after this whole case was finished, I told you, Shlemagarin got uh, really marginalized himself from the entire Haredi community and really from the entire Bezdin by going against them. Uh, and ruled that this guy wasn't Jewish, and therefore the divorce was never needed, and therefore the children were not mamzerim. A couple years later, this individual, not even a couple years later, I think it was more soon than that, this individual, this Avram, who Rav Shlema Garin had, had Paskin wasn't Jewish, went to the secular courts and sued Rabbi Gorin for claiming he wasn't Jewish, when in fact he was, and the secular courts ruled that he was Jewish. So, and they also made Shlomo Garin pay a uh, pay legal fees to cover the fact that they had to rule that he was Jewish. So, a, so what ended up happening is that Shlomo Garin ruled that he wasn't Jewish in order to satisfy the secular courts, which then ruled this guy was Jewish in order to sue Shlomo Garin. So, uh, what we end up having is a situation where it was very clear to I think to I think everybody in the Torah world, except for Shlomo Garin, that uh, that this that this ruling was incorrect and that these children are mamzerim. And in a very rare instance of the Rebbe coming out very specifically against a Psak and very specifically against the decision of a certain Rav in Eretz Yisrael, the Rebbe was very loud and forceful about this. As I mentioned, he said in several sichas that uh, that this needs to be attended to and that the Rav Hupaskin it needs to uh, needs to retire or be removed. So, uh, and a, a glance into the Rebbe's take on a very interesting piece of Jewish history.